0: You can support the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. by purchasing a cell phone case from Crossway, crossweh.com slash LPR. You'll find cell phone cases for Issues Etc., Lutheran Public Radio, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, and Luther's Seal with the Reformation Solas, crossweh.com slash LPR. A percentage of your purchase will support Issues Etc., Cross LPR.
1: If you don't understand the changes that happen in the world, then you're not going to be able to make sense of what you see around you. And the you might actually disadvantage yourself by taking actions that 20, 30 years ago would have been no big deal, but today might destroy your life.
0: If the body doesn't correspond to one's self-understanding, then it's the body that's changed to match what one wills or what imagines one's mind, rather than the mind changing to match the body. That's a gender paradigm. And that's opposed to the Genesis or the biblical paradigm, which honors nature, because it also recognizes biological reality.
2: People should not talk about Bible prophecy being fulfilled today. These ancient people groups are not around anymore. They're long gone. It just so happens that other people live in the same territory. Just like every Christian needs a church, Every Christian needs a pastor. That's how the Lord has arranged it. And this, it's between me and the Lord, is a way of kind of cutting off both of those directions, the, the, the vertical and the horizontal fellowship that the Lord wants to put us in.
1: Topics you can really sink your teeth into. That's why Iowa
2: dentists love Issues Etc.
1: Do you have to come to church to be religious? Why did God create other planets, indeed, an in entire universe, when we're not using them for anything? Welcome back to Issues Etc., coming to you from the studios of Lutheran Public Radio in Collinsville, Illinois. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Just a couple questions. We'll be dealing with part 21 of our series, Kids Have Questions. Pastor Jonathan Connor joins us. He is pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Manning, Iowa. Jonathan, welcome back.
3: Thanks, Todd, it's an honor to be with you.
1: The first two questions have to do with heaven and hell. Is that a pretty common subject in the children's questions?
3: Yeah, it's one of the most common questions. I get all the time questions about what's hell like? Um, Is is hell really real? Do people actually go to hell? Are Are you saying that real people in history have gone to hell? And then questions about heaven and a lot of questions about the new earth. What's it going to be like? What are we going to do there? One from last week was on, will food taste better on the new earth? I mean, these are fascinating questions that kids, And what I've observed is the more we talk about this stuff, which we should be, it ignites their imagination. They get really curious about what the new earth is going to be like, and they get excited about it. So I get these questions every week, all the time. I think they're wonderful, and I'm excited to talk about a couple of them today.
1: The first one, is hell actually on fire?
3: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I love the way kids ask this. And and what I love about it is they will ask what adults are afraid to ask, right? So uh, we'll work through the answer I gave to the child, and then I'll dig in a little bit deeper. Okay, first, I say to the child, let's make sure we know what we're talking about when we say hell. Hell, technically, is the place of final punishment for those who have rejected the Lord Jesus. The Bible talks about it in several places. Jesus alludes to it in Matthew 25. Here's what the text says there. This is a selected verses out of that chapter. Then he will say, the Lord will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And then skipping a few verses ahead, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Okay, so continuing the the answer to the child. So hell was prepared for the devil and those spiritual beings who rebelled with him. As far as I can tell, it was not created for humans, but humans who reject Jesus, who basically mirror the rebellion of the devil and his angels, will be damned to hell upon Christ's return at the end of this age. In the meantime, they upon dying are held in a prison of sorts in anticipation of the coming judgment. And the Bible has nothing encouraging to say about hell. In the above text, it's described as eternal punishment. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus says, If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The Bible describes hell as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, as a place of great misery and suffering. It is totally removed from God and his love. Take a look at Matthew eight and I list uh, several verses where you can find references to hell, but Matthew eight and Matthew 25, second Thessalonians chapter one, Revelation 20, Romans two. So I continue. So hell will be a place of great suffering, misery and torment, but it is not a place a person ends up against their will. It is the place they end up for willfully rejecting Jesus now regarding the fire in addition to being described as a place of flames it is also described as a place of great darkness so we don't want to take some of the images too literally the overarching point seems to be the great torment of hell a torment we need not fear because we are covered by the blood of jesus Okay, so that's where the answer to the child ends. Now, let me dig in a little bit here, okay? We, we've talked about hell before in our conversation, so I'm not gonna go too broad in my answer today. But I do wanna zero in on the nature of hell. And I wanna say up front, I know, at least I hope, this is not anybody's favorite subject, right? Because it's not mine. It's not something I'm you know thrilled to talk about. But the reality is, our Lord confessed hell, right? explicitly, multiple times. So we would be fools to dismiss what our lord confessed so hell is real hell is eternal and the important thing here is hell is avoidable through repentance and faith in christ now okay i'm going to read a couple paragraphs on hell from francis peeper's christian dogmatics because i think he does a fine job of laying out the nature of hell and just for for any listeners who may not be familiar with Francis Pieper. He was president of Concordia Seminary in St. Louis in the late 1800s. Uh, he was president of the LCMS, turn of the century 1800s into 1900s. And he has a three-volume set, basically a systematic theology called Christian Dogmatics, still used a lot in our, our church body. So here's what he writes. The nature of eternal damnation consists in eternal banishment from the sight of God, in being forever excluded from communion with God to the doomed, Christ says, this is from Matthew 25, 41, depart from me. And then Matthew 8, 12, they shall be cast out into outer darkness. Pieper continues, in describing the state of damnation, scripture uses a variety of terms, but all of them express intense agony of body and soul. Tribulation and anguish, Romans 2, being in torments, Luke 16, tormented in this flame, Luke 16, the fire that never shall be quenched, where the worm dieth not, Mark chapter 9, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, Matthew 8 and 13. Okay, so that's where Pieper ends. But then Pieper goes on to to address the, the question of the fire, right? And it's a long discussion, so I'll just summarize the first parts of it. He quotes some of the Lutheran fathers. And he says, some counsel deferring judgment on this question, some take an immaterial interpretation, so a sort of a a spiritual fire of sorts, and some take it as simply referring to extreme agony. And then here's what Pieper writes. As a rule, our old theologians conclude their presentation with the remark, it is wiser to be concerned about escaping this eternal fire by true repentance than to engage in an unprofitable argument as to the nature of this fire. You got to give peeper credit right he's basically saying we don't know for sure but uh the point is you don't want to be there so and then he adds this and this, this is really spot on he says one thing is sure hell contains no atheists because the damned actually experience god as the righteous judge there is no more room in hell for the lie that there is no god so that ends peeper's quote so what he's saying is hell will expose the lie that those in hell have believed so God is real he is Lord and hell is justice for sin for our sin and for our rebellion against him but here's what we need to make sure we tell people this is the good news all right Christ has taken that justice on himself and that means we do not need to fear hell so go back to the point I made earlier all right hell is avoidable in fact we have this wonderful hymn in our hymnal right lift high the cross i'm just gonna uh, i'll close with this just the one one phrase from that that hymn the what verse five let every race and every language tell of him who saves our life from death and hell that's marvelous i think that's the message we really need to be emphasizing
1: we're talking with Pastor Jonathan Conner, pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Manning, Iowa. It's part 21 of our series Kids Have Questions. There's a question about heaven coming up next. How did God address the Gentile nations through the prophet Isaiah? What is God's message to His own people regarding both judgment and consolation? And how does Isaiah's divine message apply to us today? Find out in the new Concordia Commentary on Isaiah, chapters 13 through 27. Learn more at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February, the Concordia Commentary on Isaiah 13-27. through 27. Join Lutherans for Life at the For Such a Time as this Lutheran
2: Adoption Conference, April 10th and 11th in Houston, Texas. Enjoy the testimony and talents of Dove Award-winning musician and adoptee Mark Schultz. Discover expert information and exciting opportunities, and experience the fellowship and celebration the 2024 Lutheran Adoption Conference, April 10th and 11th in Houston. Find out more and register at lutheransforlife.org conferences. Educating a new generation of Lutherans, you're listening to Issues Etc.
4: This is Pastor Matthew Harrison, president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. The LCMS operates the second largest parochial school system in the United States. What can you expect from a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod School? There's one race, the human race, and Jesus died for the sins of every man, woman, and child from every land and every nation. Life begins at conception, all life is precious from womb to tomb, and every student, parent, and teacher is created in the very image of God. There's right and wrong, and we know which is which from the 10 Commandments. There are only two sexes, Male and female, He created them. Marriage is the lifelong union of one man and one woman. There's such a thing as objective, absolute truth, and it's found in the person and work of Jesus Christ and His Word. To find a Lutheran Church Missouri Synod school near you, visit lcms.org schools.
1: Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. We're in part 21 of our series. Kids have questions with Pastor Jonathan Connor, pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Manning, Iowa. Speaking of children, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod operates the second largest parochial school system in the U.S. To find a Lutheran school near you for the 2024-25 20, school year, visit lcms.org/schools. lcms.org/schools. The next question, Jonathan, is: Can you fly an airplane into heaven?
3: Don't you love the way kids ask questions? I mean, it's actually a very thoughtful question. Only a child would ask it that way. But I think this gives us a great opportunity to talk about this. And I also love that they're thinking about it. You can just see like the wheels turning in their heads, right, and I, I love this. So here's what I say to the child. This is a great question. The short answer is no, but we need to clarify a couple of things about the word heaven its meaning is determined by its context so it can be used to refer to the sky in this case obviously you can fly an airplane in heaven but it can also be used to refer to the starry hosts above and to the domain of god so you can fly a spaceship into the starry hosts of heaven but no airplane or spaceship can take you to the domain of god now where is god's domain the bible does not attempt to locate it heaven appears to be what we would call a different dimension. I don't pretend to understand this, but it's what seems to make the most sense of the evidence. But let me add one more thing. The promise of the Bible is that when Christ returns, heaven will be eternally joined to earth. So while we may not fully understand where heaven is now, we know precisely where heaven will be when Christ returns, connected to earth forever. So, heaven earth will be eternally located here and we will live and reign with christ on it forever now will we fly an airplane into or across it maybe it will be real enough to do that will we even have airplanes well we'll have to wait and see on that one so that's where i end with the child and i mentioned to the child okay the meaning of that word heaven as with many of well Most words, even in any language, we have this experience just in regular conversation. But heaven is one of those words where we need to pay attention to context, how it's being used. So for example, in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul mentions a man, which we know he's talking about himself here, who was caught up into the third heaven. So this is what I described to the child, Now, I didn't use the term third heaven. But you have the sky or the atmosphere, the the first heaven. You have outer space, what we would call it, the second heaven. And you have the realm of God, the third heaven. It's that third heaven that we're really trying to zero in on right now. God's realm, God's domain. So I appreciate the way Psalm 113 describes God's domain. It says, who is like the Lord, our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. So a great, great description. And you have all kinds of verses about heaven being where God's throne is. So the question is, can we fly an airplane there? And the answer is, no, we can't. And one of the simplest reasons why is because, if truth be told, we don't know where that is. And I don't even know if where is the right way to talk about it because it seems like we're not talking about a geographic location, but a dimension, like I said to the child. And I've looked this up in lots of different resources, reference sources and so forth, trying to figure this out. I'm just going to quote Pieper again. I just quoted him in the last question, but he has some good stuff to say on this. He says, the location of heaven can no more be fixed than the location of hell. Every attempt, therefore, to locate heaven geographically is folly. Now, he has a couple Latin terms here, which I'm going to just roughly translated into English. So as to the where of the damned, so wherever the damned is, is wherever God manifests his eternal wrath. So the where of the blessed is wherever God reveals himself in his uncovered glory face to face. Now, do I find Pieper's answer totally satisfying? No, but I'm not discouraged by it at all. And here's why. When I think about this, and I just wanna, wanna say that these kids' questions They have really forced me to think about this not just about where heaven is but even how to conceptualize it most of the beings there we assume don't have a body we know jesus has a body and we we know that enoch and elijah would have bodies but maybe people get a temporary body there because here's what i'm thinking of when moses and elijah appear with jesus on the mount of transfiguration the gospel writers don't say well Elijah had a body and Moses was a disembodied spirit. They apparently both appeared the same. So my point is maybe and I can't be dogmatic on this someone may call in or write in and say hey that's totally wrong and I'm certainly willing to be corrected on this one but maybe we get some sort of temporary body in heaven wherever or however it is. But like I said even though people's answer isn't totally satisfying to me it's not discouraging to me because what it does is At least a couple things for me. One, it humbles me because I have to acknowledge I've got three pounds of gray matter in my skull. And now the brain is amazing. And the more we discover about it, we realize just how phenomenal the brain is. But we have to acknowledge it is limited. So on this one, I just have to acknowledge my limitations. And number two, tell you what else it does for me. It awakens a hunger and a yearning to know how can this not excite us how can it not awaken our curiosity and how can your mind not just be flooded with dozens of questions right i mean i I would fully hope that all of you run to your pastor this weekend and say i've been thinking about heaven and i've got a dozen questions i mean your pastor would be thrilled overwhelmed yes but thrilled all right but there are a couple more things that i want to highlight that i think are so exciting number one this is important heaven is where God is, all right? And we have this beautiful gift from Jesus in the Lord's Supper. And we have this beautiful liturgy that helps us confess it. So right before we sing the Sanctus, really Sanctus is a phenomenal song, right? It's this amazing combination of heaven's song, right? Holy, 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 and earth's song, Hosanna, 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 into one song, right? I mean, that's brilliant and beautiful. So right before this, the pastor says, therefore, with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and saying, and then we sing the sanctus, right? It's it's beautiful. And this is what we're confessing. This is astonishing. Heaven and earth are overlapping in the sacrament. It's such a marvelous thought. And let me offer just one more thought. I think this is so exciting. And I mentioned this to the child. So we've got the Lord's Supper. We have heaven and earth interacting in that moment, in that sacrament. But okay, the great big promise of scripture is that God is going to bring heaven to earth when Christ comes. And they are going to be joined together forever. I, I think that's such a marvelous thought. So back to the original question. Will we fly airplanes there? Well, I'll say maybe, because here's how I think through that. If man hadn't sinned, would he have eventually invented airplanes? I don't know why not. Will we fly airplanes across the heavens on the new earth? Maybe. The point for now, though, is it will certainly be real enough to do that. We'll just have to wait and see on that one. But here's the thing I want to close with. We get to think about this. We get to wonder. We get to imagine. And we get to anticipate and long for the eternal joining of heaven and earth. And personally, I find that so exciting and so hope-filled. And I, I suspect, you know, like your opening question about do kids ask these questions often? Well, after we've just sort of worked through some of these questions in the last five minutes, I suspect any any listener who's paying attention has that same feeling of, I have a lot more questions. Well, I see that in our kids and uh, they flood me with questions all the time because when you awake that excitement for heaven and the new earth, I think it just opens this floodgate of of good questions and curiosity, which I think God would want us to be curious about and look forward to the coming of Christ and the bringing of heaven to earth. I, I think these are good conversations we should be engaging in on a regular basis.
1: How often do we need to read our Bible and what time do we need to read our Bible? Yeah, great
3: question. I mean, think about this. This is a real question from a kid, right? They're asking him, well, how often should we read our Bible? And, and when should I do that? So let me answer that kid's question first. And I'm gonna spend a little time on this because this one's really important. So I say, wonderful question. I love that you're assuming that we need to read our Bible. You're spot on. Now, having said that, the Bible doesn't mandate how often or what time we need to read it. So we can't either. But we can say that we most certainly need to read it because the Bible, time and time again, extols the value and power of God's word for bringing salvation, for forgiving sins, for reshaping our hearts, for teaching us wisdom, for helping us understand the world we live in, for showing us what love is and where truth is found and on and on. So the main thing here is that you're reading your Bible. Maybe you read it for 10 minutes before bed. Maybe you read it after supper. Maybe you read it before breakfast. The important thing is that you find what works for you and that you do it consistently. The key here is the consistent reading and the rereading of the Bible. We need to hear it and re-hear it over the course of our lifetime. And this habitual act will change us and shape us in amazing, and positive ways but again the key here is the habit of reading your bible and thinking about it the bible calls this meditating on god's word so it's a little bit like a cow the cow takes a bite of grass and then chews on it and chews on it and chews on it that's what we do with the bible we take a bite of the text so to speak and then we chew on it we think about it throughout the day and we do this our whole life long And not only do we discover amazing things in God's word that we would never have discovered otherwise, but we discover that the Bible changes us, that it makes us into a new kind of human that Jesus has called us to be. So here's my challenge for you. Don't set any huge goal about reading the Bible in a set amount of time. Instead, enjoy reading your Bible a little at a time for the rest of your life. Don't worry about any arbitrary number or time. Enjoy the process. So that's where my answer to the child ends. Now let me spend some time expanding on this because this this is really, really important. The point is not a rigid time of the day or amount of time. The point is to celebrate the act of reading the text and the act of meditating on it. So maybe that's five minutes. Maybe it's 20. But I think too many of us have this idea that I've got to read my Bible for 30 minutes a day. Now, it's not bad to read your Bible for 30 minutes a day, but it misses the joy in the reading and the meditating. So my point is this, sometimes we set up these sort of lofty goals, like reading our Bibles for 30 minutes a day, and then we hold it over our heads either as a mark of pride because we we accomplished it which no really think about that <laughs> there should be some red flags all over the place if we're taking pride in our accomplishment of reading our bibles like we're missing the missing something there right or what's more likely to happen is that we will fall short of our lofty goal and then we're going to feel guilty and we're going to think things like i'm a bad christian and then guess what we'll do we'll just give up on reading the bible altogether so Here's what I want uh, this child, but, but really for all of us, for all me, my, myself, for, for all our listeners to get is this, throw out the goal, just throw out the goal, hone the habit. Now we're going to have to be intentional about the habit, like where we put it in our day, but the point isn't going to be hitting some lofty goal, like 30 minutes a day, seven days a week sort of thing. The point is enjoying the word. The point here is delighting in the process, in the actual reading of the text, in meditating on it. So no guilt if you miss a day, don't do that. Just pick it back up the next day and enjoy it. But I wanna drill in to be a little bit more specific here because I wanna take listeners to two habitual moments of our day. And these are critical. There's just two for now. There are many more we could do, but I'll just do two. One will be our waking time, so when we're getting up in the morning, and our getting ready for bedtime. Most of us have habits built into these times, and I want us to essentially audit these times to help us see what we might not be seeing. So I want to start with our waking time. This is a critical moment in our day. It's a directional moment. It's a trajectory moment. It's a framing moment. And my question to our listeners is, what does that moment look like in your life? So here are my questions. How long does it take you before you turn on the TV? How long does it take you before you start checking your email or scrolling Facebook or flipping through TikTok videos? We have to understand this is a habit and here's what we need to understand about habits habits are not neutral okay we got to get this one our habits are not neutral so if this is one of your habits i want i want us to think about what we're doing here so the day is new and fresh here's the question who's going to frame the day who's going to direct your thinking for the day, if TV or TikTok or Facebook is one of the first things you do in your waking moments, then you are inviting them to tell you what is good and right and true and beautiful, to tell you what you should pursue, to tell you where you should find your worth, to tell you what should give you a reason to live. You're basically saying this, Facebook, please catechize me, TikTok. Would you please catechize me? You political babbling heads, please catechize me." Now, of course, we would never really say that out loud. We know better, but our habits are saying that. So our head knows better than to say that, right? Like I said, but here's the thing, our heart won't follow our head. Our heart will follow our habits because we are our habits. So. Let's think of it this way. just a simple phrase. Word before world. Word before world. We need to be catechized by the word. We need to hear what God believes is good and right and true and beautiful. We need to hear what God says about us, how God justifies us and gives us a reason for living. And like I said a minute ago, This does not have to be a hugely time-consuming thing. That is not the point. The point is for all of us to take our habits seriously. And the point is to understand how habits shape us. It's to understand that our heart will follow our habits because habits order our desires and we will follow after we will pursue what we love. So that waking time is a critical time. And I would encourage our listeners to give that waking time some serious thought, and you may need to restructure it. Now, I also want to encourage us to look at the closing moments of our day with the same intentionality, right? Too many of us let the world offer us our final thoughts of the day. We let the world defeat us its version of the good, the right, the true, and the beautiful. And like before, none of us would ever say, you know, I really want to fall asleep with Sean Hannity's voice just echoing in my mind. I really want Laura Ingram and Jesse Waters to catechize me in the good, the right, the true, and the beautiful. I mean, I really want to dream about Mr. Beast or let Addison Rae or Charlie D'Amelio captivate my imagination and set the trajectory of my life. I mean, as Christians, we would never say that. But our habits betray us, and our hearts will follow our habits. So, like I said, we don't want to set up these sort of rigid and lofty goals that will leave us feeling guilty when we don't achieve them, or prideful if we do. What we do want to do, though, is be intentional about our habits. And we do want to enjoy the process of reading our Bibles and meditating on the text. Now, obviously, there's so much more to say on this. That's probably enough for now. Just a simple point. Let's
1: pay attention to our habits. Pastor Jonathan Connor is our guest. It's our series, Kids Have Questions. The next question I heard from someone that you don't have to come to church to be religious. Is this true?
0: This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we continue on in James with a dead faith, faith in works, taming the tongue, a restless evil, and wisdom from above. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15 minute, verse by verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider.
4: Theology has consequences. It doesn't live just in ivory towers, but actually in the very choices and daily lives of God's people as they live out what they believe and confess in the world. To learn more about how theology affects our daily lives, this February issue of The Lutheran Witness discusses how the theology of Seminex affected the very lives of God's people in the LCMS and how God worked to preserve his church. Visit cph.org slash witness to subscribe. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective.
1: A number of people have asked about Ad Cruesome's process to order our faux stained glass window clings. It's easy. Email us with your window's dimensions, the images you require, and the style you like, and we will quote to design, print, and ship your window clings to you. We recommend having them professionally installed. If you wish to purchase a sample, we have a gorgeous small Luther rose cling available on the website. Pop on over to AdCruesome.com. That's A D C R U C E M dot com.
2: Equipping the priesthood of all believers. You're listening to Issues, etc. Are humans animals? This is Ken Ham, speaker and author on the Bible's reliability and authority. Are humans just animals? Well, that's a popular belief, but that's not what the Bible teaches. You see, that comes from the idea that humans evolved from ape-like creatures. But God's word says humans are different from the animals. We're made in God's image. No animal bears God's image, only humans do. And the Bible says mankind was given dominion over creation, including the animals. We aren't like them. We have dominion over them. And when Adam named the animals, he realized there were none like him. So God created a woman, Eve, just for him. No, humans aren't just animals, and we didn't evolve from them. We're specially made by God in His image.
1: There's so much more to discover when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. Find answers to your questions about science and the Bible at AnswersRadio.com. It's our series with Pastor Jonathan Connor. Kids have questions. I'm Todd Wilcom. This is Issues Etc. Here's one, Jonathan. I heard from someone that you don't have to come to church to be religious. Is this true?
3: Yeah, it wouldn't be hard to hear that from someone because a lot of someone's seem to believe that. So I think this, this question is very perceptive by this child, and we need to spend a few minutes dwelling on this one because this is a very common belief among those who are claiming to be Christian today, so we need to address it head on. So I say, wonderful question. Let me walk you through this. Scripture says you are baptized into the body of Christ, which is the church. So baptism connects you to the church. And the church gathers around the font, the pulpit and the altar to receive God's grace through God's means and to give him the praise that is due his name. So we're not actually, going to church, we're gathering with the church. You belong to this church, to this people, and this people is a gathering people. Scripture knows nothing of a lone ranger Christian, of a Christian who doesn't gather with the gathering people, of a Christian who doesn't hear Christ's word or receive Christ's sacraments. Scripture would look at that person like we would look at a bottle of tomato-less ketchup or peanut-less peanut butter. It doesn't make sense. If you are a Christian, then you will gather with the gathering people. If you don't want to gather with the gathering people, why are you calling yourself a Christian? Christians gather together. That's what we do. If someone doesn't want to do that, then they should probably quit using the name Christian. Let me show you how the Bible speaks about this. Luke tells us that The new converts to Christianity, quote, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, end quote, from Acts chapter 242. This is something they gathered together to do. Paul says, quote, devote yourselves to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching, end quote, from 1 Timothy 4.13. Notice the emphasis on the public reading of scripture. This is something they gathered together to do. And the book of Hebrews says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. End of quote, Hebrews chapter 10, 22 to 25. Now, he doesn't want them to stop meeting together as some were in the habit of doing. Why? Because he knows that the day of the Lord is real. And he knows that Jesus warned us over and over and over again to be ready, to be watchful, to be alert. And there's no way we can do that if we aren't gathering together to hear God's word and to align our lives with it. So again, Christians are a gathering people. They are people God gathers around his word and sacraments. If we want to be Christian, then we need to gather with the gathering, with the God gathered people. Okay, so that's where my answer to the child ends. Now I really want to spend a few minutes uh, digging into this because I know this is a very common uh, idea among a lot of people who are using the name Christian today. And the problem though with this idea is it has this little piece of truth in it, but the problem is it's like swallowing your vitamin with poison. I mean, is the vitamin still good for you? Yeah, but the poison will kill you. So can we reduce Christianity to bottoms in the pew? Well, of course not. We're not saved by placing our bottoms in the pew, we're saved by placing our faith in Christ. So God doesn't have this attendance chart, right? You're not gonna show up at the gates of heaven and hear Jesus say, oh, yeah, sorry. Um, You are one bottom in the pew short of salvation. That's silly. We're not talking like that. But here's the question. Does faith in Christ avoid placing bottoms in the pew? No. So I said to the child, the Bible knows nothing of the Lone Ranger Christian, right? It's right up there, like I said, with the child with tomato-less ketchup and peanut-less peanut butter. There just isn't a category for this. There's no category for being religious without worshiping with the gathering of the gathered. Now look, I need to say, I'm aware of all of the whatabouts. These need to be addressed one by one, right? What about this situation? What about that situation? But one by one, we should address those, that's fine. But right now, we're just talking about the person who chooses not to lower their bottom into the pew but still wants to use the name Christian. Or to be a little bit more precise here, we're talking about the person who sees no need to receive the gifts of God with the people of God. Scripture does not categorize this person as Christian. Martin Luther talks about this in his large catechism. He's writing about despising the sacrament, so going a long time without caring to receive it but it applies to what we're talking about here too here's what luther says he says i call it despising when people with nothing to hinder them let a long time elapse without ever desiring the sacrament if you want such liberty you may just as well take the further liberty not to be a christian then you need not believe or pray For the one is just as much Christ's commandment as the other." All right. Luther's right. But I want to get just a little more pointed for a moment, especially with our Lutheran listeners. This idea of not needing to, quote unquote, go to church to be religious this reflects an emaciated understanding, both of the church, because like I said to the child, you don't go to church, you gather with the church, but it's also an emaciated understanding of worship. And it grows out of a very generic, Protestant understanding of worship that is completely devoid of a sacramental theology that has no concept of God as the primary actor in worship but it sees worship as something we do, as an effort that we put forth, as a choice that we make. This is not Lutheran theology, and this is not biblical theology. So I want to quote two books here to make my point. They're both hymnals of ours. The first one is from our most previous hymnal, Lutheran worship, and the second from our new hymnal, Lutheran service book. I'm just going to pull a couple excerpts out from the front of the hymnals to make my point. So first from Lutheran worship. Our Lord speaks and we listen. His word bestows what it says. Faith that is born from what is heard acknowledges the gifts received with eager thankfulness and praise. The rhythm of our worship is from him to us and then from us back to him he gives the gifts and together we receive and extol them okay so that's where the first quote ends. let me now go to lutheran service book our lord is the lord who serves jesus christ came into the flesh not to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many and then skipping forward our lord serves us today through his holy word and sacraments through these means He comes among us to deliver his forgiveness and salvation, freeing us from our sins and strengthening us for service to one another and to the world. At holy baptism, he puts his name upon us, pours his Holy Spirit into our hearts and rescues us from sin, death and the devil. Through holy absolution, he pronounces his forgiveness again and again With his holy word written in scripture and preached into our ears, he daily proclaims his abiding love for us through all the joys and sorrows of life in this world. In his holy supper, he gives his own body and blood to eat and drink as a priceless gift to nourish and strengthen us in both body and soul. Okay, so that's where the quote ends, but this is really important. The direction of worship is from god to us and then from us back to god so the prevailing generic protestant understanding of worship that is all focused on what you're doing has an exceedingly emaciated understanding of what's happening to your soul when your bottom is on that pew so just to go back to the child's question to wrap this up can you be religious without gathering with the church to receive christ's gifts yeah just not christian christians gather with those god's spirit has gathered they gather to receive god's gifts in word and sacraments and then they respond in prayer and praise that flows out into their vocations
1: Pastor Jonathan Connor is our guest. We're in part 21 of our series, Kids Have Questions. Why did God create all those planets is next.
0: You can support the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. by purchasing a cell phone case from Crossway, crossweh.com slash LPR. You'll find cell phone cases for Issues Etc., Lutheran Public Radio, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, and Luther's Seal with the Reformation Solas, crossweh.com slash LPR. A percentage of your purchase will support Issues Etc., Cross slash LPR. your
2: daily Lutheran Bible class, you're listening to Issues Etc.
1: At Memoria Press, the Simply Classical curriculum is specifically designed for students with significant learning challenges. This complete program includes everything you need for a school, self-contained classroom, tutoring, or homeschool to make a classical Christian education accessible for any child. To learn more, visit us at simplyclassical.com. Then use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Simply classical, a beautiful education for any child. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Pastor Jonathan Conner is our guest pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Manning, Iowa. It's part 21 of our series with him, Kids Have Questions. I think this is a question that a lot of adults have as well given that you can walk out on any evening and stare at the night sky and say what is all that for why did god create other planets when we are not using them for anything
3: yeah i think you're right it's a question that all of us have asked i'm just going to dive right in because this is exciting so i say to the child this is actually pretty amazing to think about god created the rest of the universe for us here's what genesis says Genesis chapter one and God said "Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate uh, the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth and it was so so I say to the child look at the text they were given for the earth for the benefit of the people on the earth us So we use these heavenly bodies to mark seasons and signs or or symbols for understanding the heavenly beings that God has created to assist him in his governing the universe. But you're right, we're not using the other planets for anything, at least not most of them. The planets in our solar system, they do benefit us in certain ways, like Jupiter, for example, absorbs comets and meteors that might otherwise hit Earth, kind of like a, a big brother watching out for us. But having said that, there are many that we're not using. So why create them? To fill our imagination with wonder and curiosity, to wow us with the immensity of the universe and the immeasurable might of God, to draw us beyond ourselves. We have a great hymn in our hymnal with these words, which I think are relevant here. And this is from hymn 880. Now rest beneath the night's shadow. Verse three Now all the heavenly splendor breaks forth in starlight tender from myriad worlds unknown, and we, this marvel scene forget our selfish being for joy of beauty not our own now that's something to think about now okay that's where the answer is to the child but there is something in this child's question that I want to spend a little time reflecting on and I think this comes out in the way we ask the question it's the idea that if we're not using something for some practical function that it must have no purpose I think this is a very utilitarian way of looking at the world. Now, I acknowledge that the planets in our solar system, some of them do benefit us in certain ways. And there are more that I didn't mention. But as soon as you leave our solar system, you're going to find planets and entire galaxies that serve no practical purpose for us. So and that's the question I want to get after. Does something have to do something to have value or purpose? So we look up at the night sky, Uh, we might say, well, you can use the stars for navigation, that's great. But we might argue that, well, we use them for marking the seasons. Fine, that's also great, but the universe is big. There There are whole lots of stars and planets and galaxies that have no measurable purpose for us at all. So that's my question. Does something have to do something to have value or purpose? And you hear evolutionists saying this all the time. If there's no life out there, it's just a big waste of space. If it doesn't do anything, it has no value. So the planets and the stars, I mean, they can't open a can. They can't tighten a bolt. They can't measure tire pressure or blood pressure or mix your smoothie. But is purpose limited to mechanics? Does it have to do something measurable? So the scriptures speak of the heavens this way. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And we have this little hymn in our evening prayer service, right in the hymnal called the Phos Hilaron, right? Hymn of light that echoes with these words. We sing to God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are worthy of being praised with pure voices forever. O Son of God, O Giver of life, the universe proclaims your glory. I think that line is so profound. The universe, by its existence and the immensity of its existence, magnifies God. So it calls us beyond ourselves, even as it humbles us. That's why I love the hymn I shared with the the child, Now Rest Beneath the Night's Shadow, right? We look up at the blazing night sky and we marvel. And then how the hymn ends. We forget our selfish being for joy of beauty, not our own. Wow, that is profound. I think that's so worthy of meditation. So the marvel of the universe, the beauty of the starry heavens moves us to forget our selfish being. Honestly, I feel like our culture could use just a big dose of the night sky. It's, it's no doubt why David asked the question in Psalm 8, right? When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. So I'm going to bring this a little bit closer to home because I think there are some things we can appreciate here. The idea here is that a thing doesn't have to do a thing to have value or worth. The universe doesn't really do anything practical but has the potential both to pull us beyond ourselves and to humble us both things. I think we need, but here's what I really want us to appreciate. A thing doesn't have to have to to, to do something practical, right? To have value. So here I'm first, I'm thinking of people. So we have this very utilitarian view of people in our culture. The unborn can't do anything useful. So if you don't want them, just throw them out. Some of our elderly, can't do too much that's useful or profitable for our culture so we can just throw them out too right but that is an impoverished view of the human person and i think c.s lewis got this right in his essay or sermon the weight of glory when he said next to the blessed sacrament itself your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses so that neighbor regardless of his age or stage or ability bears the image of God. I think there's something beautiful there. There's something valuable there apart from the person's utility. And it calls for a certain kind of response from us. And just let me squeak in one more point here. I think Christians need to do a better job of appreciating the inherent worth of beauty in and of itself. I mean, beauty for beauty's sake but let me make sure I'm being clear. I've got C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man in the back of my head here. The idea is this. Beautiful things merit a sort of reverent response from us. They call for an appropriate reverence or appreciation. And I would argue that this is an appreciation that we might have, for example, like of an echo of a beautiful melody. The thing is beautiful in itself, but it's pointing us to a source from which it came. So just like with the starry heavens, beauty, whether it's in music or art or food or wine or architecture or in creation, has the ability both to call us beyond ourselves and to humble us. So even if it can't mix your smoothie or grind your coffee, it has value and worth. And I think this should force us to rethink our homes and our worship spaces. I think we've become very utilitarian, very cheap, very imitation-y. And I think it has impoverished our imaginations. I also think it has emaciated our souls. We're so obsessed with practicality that we've forgotten that our souls feast on beauty and aesthetics. So like I said earlier, I think we could all benefit from a big dose of the night sky. God gave it all for you. So see the marvel and forget your selfish being for joy of beauty, not your own.
1: Pastor Jonathan Conner is pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Manning, Iowa. Jonathan, thank you again. Thanks, Todd. Tuesday on Issues etc. we'll look forward to Sunday morning, according to the three-year lectionary, talking with Pastor Sean Denzer about Peter confessing Jesus as Christ and Jesus foretelling his death and resurrection in Mark chapter eight. I'm Todd Wilkin, thanks for listening.
2: is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio.